Hey, this is Dave Infante. Welcome to Vine Pairs Tap Lines, a weekly interview series with brewing icons, industry insiders, and outspoken experts about the United States' most beloved and best-selling beers. It's modern American history, one beer at a time. Don't you dare call it a comeback, listener. All right, I mean, you can if you want, actually, because historian Maureen Ogle is making her triumphant tap lines return today. Today is back to the front lines of the light beer wars, that ferocious 20th century struggle for swill-based supremacy between America's emerging macro brewers. For those of you newcomers, Maureen is the author behind the essential United States beer industry history, Ambitious Brew. She's also a longtime trusted source of yours truly, and most importantly, she's a brilliant interview to boot. Our first outing is already one of the all-time Taplines classics, and you should definitely go check it out to hear all the details on how Philip Morris and the original light beer from Miller hit the brewing industry like a less-filling freight train in the mid-70s and touched off this war in earnest. But today, we're talking about the second half of that conflict. After Schlitz went down swinging and big bad Anheuser-Busch entered the chat in earnest. It's Budweiser Light, it's Maureen Ogle, it's the Light Beer Wars Part Dieu, and it's all right here right now on Vine Pairs Tap Lines. Returning to Tap Lines to collect her <laughs> double appearance challenge coin, which is in the mail, look forward to that. It's none other than historian, uh, beer industry expert, author, friend of the show, she needs no introduction, but she'll get one anyway. It's Maureen Ogle. Maureen, welcome back to Tap Lines. Thank you for having me, and those are very kind words. I would not describe myself as a beer industry expert, and frankly, your buds, no pun intended, your pals would probably say, she's not an industry expert. <laughs> I'm only an expert in that I'm not in it. Sometimes people who aren't in it see things other people don't see. Well, the beauty of hosting tap lines is that we don't do this by committee. What I say goes. And so <laughs> on this show, on this show in particular, uh, you are our beer history expert okay. at least. Okay. How about that? Now that is fine. I totally take that. Yeah. Very good. Maureen, last time you joined us here on tap lines, we had a rip roaring discussion um, that I enjoyed. Our listeners enjoyed so very much about Miller Lite's introduction um, in 1975, and the conflict, uh, the the multifaceted industrial, commercial, uh, cultural conflict that it touched off that is known now collectively um, as the Light Beer Wars. And, and mm-hmm. we had a great time unpacking that. Um, we talked about how Philip Morris was involved in, you know, once they got a hold of what was then a pretty tired Miller Brewing Company, um, and then got a hold of a recipe from a Chicago uh, brewing firm for a Mm -hmm. light beer. Um, They sort of saw an opportunity to, in your words, uh, Procter and Gamblize um, the beer market to find new products to sell to new segments of consumer, which was a a sexy, slick MBA, uh, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. sort of (laughs) approach to uh, retail, to commerce at that time. Yeah. and, you know, this is a lot of what we relied on in in that conversation, certainly what I relied on, uh, was the work that you did in Ambitious Brew, which is your history of the American beer business in all its 
you know, sudsy glory or whatever you want to call it. This is the tome that I turn to whenever I'm looking for historical context, if I'm not able to get you, Maureen, on the phone uh, to <laughs> chat about it in person. But um, I would love to kick it right off. Uh, basically, where we left um, yeah. where we left our story last. So one of the, th- the last things we touched on before um, was the uh, famous, infamous quotation from mm-hmm. Anheuser-Busch's August Bush the uh, third in a Business Week article, um, where Miller at this point is is charging forward. Miller Lite is having tremendous success. They've got buckets of cigarette cash that they're just throwing into the business and changing the game. Um, and and they ask you know Augie Bush if he's if he's worried or if you know if what what Budweiser's going Anheuser Bush is going to do, and he says. Tell Miller to come right along, but tell them to bring lots of money. That's where we stopped last time. Maureen, what happens next? <laughs> <laughs> what happened next? It even kind of surprised me. Uh, the money came right along. That's for starters. <laughs> the money definitely came right along. Um, I, I should just remind listeners and viewers, AB tends, tended then to wait, let everybody else screw up before they would get into a hot new category. So they Mm -hmm. didn't release a light beer until I think three or four years after Miller Lite. And theirs was, of course, completely different. It was natural light. (laughs) So it wasn't until 1982 that the company finally decided to launch what was initially called Budweiser Light. And the the tagline was... um, Bring out your best. Yeah, bring out your bring best. Out your, That's right. Bring out, yep. bring out the butt. Bring out your best. Yeah, with this catchy little jingle attached to it. And they quickly realized that they were going to have to do a lot more than that because Miller Lite just had this this grip, a strangling grip. So they changed the shtick for but first of all, they changed the name to Bud Light sometime in around 1983 or 84. 84, they, I they, think it was, yeah. 84. They just decided to separate the two because they realized um, I mean, Miller could get away by adding L-I-T-E. That was pretty obvious. So anyway, they changed the name to Bud Light. And uh, when people would go into a bar and apparently ask for a light beer, what they would always get was a Miller because that's what people were drinking. So the sure. ad campaign was give me a light. Somebody walks into a bar, give me a light. And so someone hands them a blowtorch or somebody hands them right. a tiki torch right. or a branding iron, you know, and, and, you know, the idea was add that other word to it. Just say Bud Light. Give me, don't just give me a light. And then um, j- just as a part-time promotion aimed entirely at spring break college kids in 1985 and into 1986, the company launched a small side campaign based on a character named Spuds McKenzie, a terrier who was the ultimate party animal. And his his first big appearance was on a poster that was handed out, you know, at these company sponsored spring break get Daytona drunk Beach Panama City right right yeah, and yeah. so they they got him a t-shirt and uh he, he was a member of Delta Omega Gamma and he's adorable if you've never seen spuds you really owe it to yourself to go see what spuds look like 
And that that turned out to be so far off the charts, more than Anheuser-Busch thought, because they it, it really was never intended to be a big thing. But they realized when they were selling millions of caps and T-shirts and, you know, posters and blah, and a lot more beer. A lot more beer, uh, yeah. <laughs> they, they gave him the big time. They gave Spuds the uh, Super Bowl in 1987. So in January 1987, Spuds was revealed to the world. And for the next year, he, he would show up at red carpet events. He was in People magazine. He's on late he night was TV on shows. Late, late yep. night yep. TV shows. I mean, this guy, this character, this it was genius. Yeah. And every distributor had at least one costume. So, you know, Spuds could go everywhere. And right. he had different costumes. Sometimes he went skiing. Uh, at at the Olympics, um, he went skiing, and he would have a Hawaiian this, shirt with a luau on. Yes, for spring break. exactly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Right, I right, mean, right. there was no way. But even I, I didn't even have a TV, and I didn't drink beer then. But even I knew who Spuds McKenzie was. Huge. Naturally, that party couldn't last too long. Uh, in December of 1987, after this wonderful rollout in January of 1987, Strom Thurmond, who is mercifully no longer with us, but yeah. was a uh, deep Southern Democrat rose on the floor of the Senate to denounce spuds and the fact that AB was peddling liquor to children. Yeah. And that, that actually turned into a whole big brouhaha that in itself is noteworthy. Um, it, it, it just turned into a whole sideshow that didn't have anything to do with light beer. But the point of going through all that is that it worked. And in 1994, for the first time, Bud Light was the number one selling light beer in the country. And it, you know, had gotten past Miller Light. In fact, I think, yeah, Miller Light was second and then Coors Light. But what's most interesting is if you stand back and look, by the early 1990s, light beer had simply taken over the entire American beer market, except this was for the effectively craft beer. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. It just, I mean, it just, it, by 2000, it was something like half the volume of beer. The, the top in 19, uh, if I can find it, I'm terrible with numbers and dates and shit. Oh, I didn't bring that in here. <laughs> but uh, in 1994 of the top 10 beers, uh, six of them were light beers. I mean, the, light beers were it. Yeah. And and then again, I'm just I'm intentionally leaving out the craft because that right. 2000 was like 4% of the market so we can just leave them out. Sure. But light beer in the 90s just turned into this incredible behemoth. I, I it's was a juggernaut, I was right, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean it just it just steamrolled everything else out of the picture. And by the mid 90s, for example, uh August Bush the 4th had come on board by then. He, he was around in the 1990s and it and he was in charge of Budweiser, not sure. Bud Light, because they're all different brands. Right. And he really Budweiser's getting cannibalized. Mm -hmm. So he starts throwing everything he thinks of. He he he. I have this great quote, if I can find it real fast and probably I won't be able to. But oh, yeah. In, in 1993, um, things are not good for Budweiser, which by that point had been the number one selling beer in the country, period, mm -hmm. end of story. And now suddenly yep. it's not, and it's struggling. So he, for example, uh, starts selling it in 10-ounce and 24-ounce cans and 22-ounce bottles and an 18-can pack. And he said, this is the, what I love, 
why not take a brand with established equity and then introduce a new can rather than spend all the money to introduce a new product? Well, why <laughs> indeed? Why indeed? Because a 24 ounce can, you know, is going to uh, certainly cheaper, right? Didn't make any difference, but you could have probably put it in a 60 ounce can and it probably wouldn't have made any difference. Um, <laughs> it, it is, it is very difficult to overstate just how profound the impact of light beer was by the year 2000. You know, it w when it started in 1975, absolutely nobody knew that it would turn out that the overwhelming majority of American beer drinkers wanted to drink a beer yeah. with fewer calories. Who knew? So, so in that case, um, what I think is particularly interesting about August Bush, the fourth take on this. It, now, again, his brand was Budweiser, but he started to realize that the market had effectively fragmented into three pieces. One of them was very small, the craft brewers. Again, we'll just forget them for the moment. Yeah, forget about craft uh, The other thing is the juggernaut, the light beers. And, well, I guess there's four things because by then the imports were yeah, starting. Imports. And imports sure. means one of two things. It means Heineken or it means Corona. You know, it's not high-end, fancy German beers that have been around for 500 years. We're talking basic beers, right? Right, right. And then the fourth category is everything else. And he, August 4th, the Bush, August Bush the 4th, um, <laughs> decided to, um, in his mind, Budweiser had become something you could play off both sides. If you think craft beer, micro, they were called microbrews then. If you think micro beer is too heavy and bitter, then Budweiser is a good beer for you. Mm -hmm. But if you think the light beers are too light, then Budweiser is probably perfect for you. So he keeps trying to thread this needle, and it simply doesn't work. And and it's not just Budweiser. Miller Life, I mean, Miller Life is essentially no longer living. You know, High Life? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Miller High Life. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, High yeah. Life, not light. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And so the logical thing to do in capitalist market, capitalism runs on novelty. Apparently the novelty, well, light beer wasn't exactly a novelty, but from 2000 on, the quest became, how can we, how many ways can we market beer with virtually no calories and beer with virtually no alcohol? Uh, Michelob Ultra which I think today is still a huge seller. Someone oh, an absolute me beast. Yeah, it, yeah it's no, like a, it's it's just a, a thing, right? I, I've never very tasted much so. it. I, yeah, 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 I've never tasted a light beer, but in in the early aughts, two thousand two or somewhere around there, AB decided to take what was basically its premier beer. It's perhaps best beer. It, this is Michelob you market, that you're talking about. Michelob, right? Yeah, you, you know, full it's flavored. Not for, premium this right. is it's got malt it's got hops you know it is a it is their premier beer and they yep. start knocking the calories out of it first so you get multiple ultralight then the low carb come thing comes in mm. and low now <laughs> I, I i personally I, I mean we're talking you know 65 calories and maybe one gram of carbs sure. I, I don't really know what that means in real life but apparently people care about stuff like that so brewers big brewers in the u.s spent from 2000 until well they're probably still doing it at least until 2007 uh trying to spin low calorie beer every conceivable way you can do it using every 
advertising thing you can think of. But just, I can't even imagine, I can't imagine what one of those beers tastes like. And it, I think it just says something about Americans' relationship to beer, that the overwhelming desirable beer in the United States was essentially slightly alcoholic, slightly tasty water. Right. right. You, like know, you know, it's like a malt soda at that point. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah except I don't even think you could taste the malt. So it, it's, um, <laughs> but, but the, the early odds are just full of, of variance on a light beer. I mean, I'm kind of stupefied by how many ways you could sell a, a light beer at one point, AB was putting blueberry juice into one of theirs. You know, the, I mean, it was, you know, what is the bottom, you know, wh- when are we going to hit bottom with this? Right. Well, and they and they eventually would. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's right. In two thousand seven, for the first time, light beers started to slip as a category. By this time, regular beer, you know, it's just not there anymore. The premium beers, um, the premium. By the by, this time there are premium low alcohol beers, and one of them is from Heineken. And I I just have to read this because I I, I <laughs> fell in love with this comment. It, this marketing shtick. This is 2005. And, and so now what you're going to do is make a, a luxury, an ultra premium beer with no calories and no carbs, right? Mm-hmm. So this is the Heineken line. Their, their thing was, this is smooth, right? Meet something smooth tonight. Someone smooth is waiting for you at the bar. Are you getting the smoothness you need? So you know, this is Heineken, <laughs> right? Uh, God, you know, I this I mean, is high I, powered stuff, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess, I guess. Um, again, I, I, it's just not clear how many ways you can strip things. Anyway, in two thousand seven, the market finally starts to drop for light beers, right? And Michelob remained and apparently still is for whatever reason, the one beer that would keep gaining sales, especially uh, after they came out with, I think it's called Michelob Ultra Gold, which was made with organic yeah, rice organic and malt. One. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, <laughs> again, just throw everything you have, take, take everything out of the beer except it's not working that well anymore. And right. by 2007, uh, things particularly for Miller had become uh, rather desperate. And in 2008, two things happened that don't have anything directly to do with light beer, but they definitely have a lot to do with beer making in general. In 2008, the Brazilian-Dutch conglomerate InBev bought Anheuser Busch, August Bush the third, agreed to sell his family's company. Not that mm-hmm. the family held the majority, but the anyway, the company was sold. And perhaps more interesting, SAB Miller. Miller had been sold in 2002. I should have mentioned that. Philip Morris sold Miller Brewing to South African Breweries, another big international conglomerate, in 2002. In 2008, about I don't know, a month or so after the AB sale went through, SAB Miller and Molson Coors merged their North American operations because they were the two 
they make Miller Lite and they make Coors Light. And right. those have been the number two and number three, switching back and forth, best-selling beers in America for, at that point, at 15 years, sure. something like that. Right. And at this point, we get Miller Coors, which is right. in 2008. That's what that North American operation that's right. becomes. That's right. Not to be confused with Molson Coors, that's right. which – when AB acquires SAB Miller in 2017, I want to say, midway through this past decade. Yeah, it was tw- tw- yeah, 2016 or 17, yeah. They are required to divest that yeah. portion amongst other uh, pieces of SAB Miller's business. And so now we get Molson Coors. Right. Maureen, and the- hang on. You you must be stopped. You just went on a 40-year tear. Uh <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did. But it's so it's so um it's so weird. The whole thing is so weird. So go ahead, Dave. Go I agree. Ahead. I, did. Oh, I, I agree. Out. I mean, it was fantastic and and watching you work was uh quite a sight to behold. But listeners who aren't as intimately familiar with the beer business as as me or especially as you might be uh feeling their head spin a little bit. So I should. Yeah. What I I would like to now that we've kind of established the yeah. the timeline, we've bracketed right. So in 1975, Miller Lite comes out. There had been light beers before, but this is the one that really plants the flag as Ooh. a category and goes on to revitalize Miller's business. That's you know the the subject of our previous episode on this. In 2008, um, driven by market forces, driven by changing tastes amongst consumers who just simply aren't drinking as much beer anymore, and finally tire of these these heavily engineered super low calorie light beers and are starting to show a little bit um there's that category starts to show a little bit of fatigue we start to see mergers amongst some of these titans in order to you know shore up their businesses because simply rolling out the latest and greatest light beer is no longer producing the returns that they want so 1975 to 2008 The intervening years are where most of the fighting, uh, if you want to stick with the metaphor of the light beer wars, that's where most of the fighting happens, right? So once uh, you may, you know, we let's, let's, I would love to, if we can just kind of zoom in on a couple of those turning points that you mentioned um, that AB takes, because I think what's so interesting about this is you mentioned the way Anheuser-Busch historically had approached sort of upstart products, mm-hmm. right? You, you talked about mm-hmm. this earlier. We talked about it with Anat Barron uh, on, a, on a recent episode of Tap Lines as well. Listener, you can go back and listen to that one. But but the general pattern is first, you know, they ignore, you know, whatever's going on. They say, this is stupid. We're not going to do it. We're just going <laughs> to not pay attention to it, right? <laughs> like, yes. um, and then, you know, and then they finally, if they, if they say, okay, now this is a bit, you know, it's a big enough thing. We can no longer ignore it because a lot of this stuff would just sort of burn itself out quickly, right? And so AB is not going to jump on the latest and greatest. That's right. Just for no reason. Then they say, well, wait a second, we need something here. So they, you know, they maybe are going to go copy you, right? They're going to say, all right, well, Miller Lite's got light beer. Let's one up them basically doing the same thing, but introducing natural light, right? Mm -hmm. All organic product, right? Like this is, oh, natural light. And this is so, this is one better than Miller Lite. Not only do we have low calories, but we have, we have light. And then maybe uh, if that doesn't work, they're going to eventually maybe look to buy you, right? And so we see that less in the light beer industry or in the light beer segment, but certainly, you know, we've sort of intentionally taken out of our conversation today, the rising 
pesky uh uh suit craft beer industry that is uh <laughs> <Hirsute>, <laughs> these, yes. a bunch of these hairy dudes from the uh pacific northwest um for the most part are making these full flavored beers and Anheuser-Busch, even well prior to the 2011 acquisition of Goose Island, which was Mm -hmm. sort of the big one that everyone thinks of, but two decades earlier, uh, Anheuser-Busch was already looking to buy their way into the craft beer segment at that time, mostly as a hedge against whatever this category is going to become, right? They can't kill it. They can't copy it. They try with Pacific Ridge and with Zwiegenbach to knock off Scheinerbach or whatever. Like, and they, and no one wants those beers. So they start buying into Red Hook. They start buying into the Craft Brewers Alliance out in the Pacific Northwest. So that's the pattern, right? And, and this, this happens a bunch of different times, um, over Anheuser Busch's history. And then even Anheuser Busch InBev, which is a drastically different company that really only shares the name with Anheuser Busch in terms of like its corporate DNA. Like it's a totally Mm -hmm. different company, but they do this to, some extent as well. Um, Natural Light is 1977. And I think it's worth starting, you know, to just kind of like zoom in at least momentarily there, because you wrote in your book that Natural Light is, you know, quote, round one in an Anheuser-Busch campaign to demolish Miller, close quote. Mm-hmm. So this is very intentionally at the time. Oh, this yeah. This is their Miller killer, right? Like this is, this is, okay, we can't ignore this light beer category anymore. Miller, with Philip Morris's backing, which is crucial to remember, Miller is selling a shitload of this beer in a, in a way that is yeah. starting to be a problem for Anheuser-Busch. Not existential, but it's clear that it's not going away. We need to do something. That something at first is natural light. And I think what's significant there, or something that I wanted to unpack just briefly with you, is it's not till 1982, five years later, that they finally roll out Budweiser Light, which mm-hmm. carries the flagship name. And so I was hoping mm-hmm. that you could speak a little bit to what that signaled when they roll out Budweiser Light with the flagship name as opposed to natural light. I mean, to me, this seems like the company is putting all its chips behind this anymore. It's not just this little dinky, you know, new brand that we spun up. We're going for it with the name that made us famous. What's the significance? Is that more or less what's going on there? Uh, That's absolutely what's going on there. I think their reluctance, I don't think I've read enough to know their reluctance was that internally they were very worried about damaging the Budweiser name, mm. right? Miller Lite was Miller Lite. It wasn't Miller High Life Lite. It's a different beer. Right. And Natural Light doesn't have the word Budweiser anywhere in it. At, at that time, Budweiser is the biggest selling beer in the country and remains it's the so. king of beers, right? Like that's we say right. that it is now that's a tongue in cheek. That now that's a right. tongue in cheek nickname, but that was no. at the time where it came from. It, yeah, it yeah. was, it was, and it is clear that um, Anheuser Busch was actually not really expecting <laughs> light beer to go anywhere. And you know, corporations are big; they move at pretty slow speeds, and there were personality issues involved. Um, August Bush the third had only recently seized control from his father, effectively booting. Yeah, he just Gussie, kind yeah. of booted him out of the company, and and now triple sticks as he was called August Bush the <laughs> third. Now he's in charge, and he, he I, I I'll say I've never met the guy, but I will say he uh, ranks up there. If you if, if you want to talk about businessmen who are like focused smart 
know what they're doing, but have enough caution so they're not stupid. He's that guy. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I will say that this was the same time when Budweiser was dipping toes into the Chinese market. So interesting, even back then. Yes. And that what I interpret that is, is that August Bush III is really starting to rethink the nature of the Anheuser-Busch company. Now that it's his, now he can really go where his vision wants it to go. He was, uh, he was mocked publicly by other beer makers for going to China. So he probably regrets to this day, he backed off China and it was another 10 years before they finally went in big, at which point they had a lot of competition that they wouldn't have had if they'd gone in the 80s. They but could my have owned, is, owned the Chinese market in that's 1977 right. they, they, they or whatever. That, yeah. they, that's right. That's right. And this is this is extremely forward thinking, listener. Like, keep in mind that like it's not mm-hmm. to, it's not only until 1972 what that Nixon goes to China, right? Like yes. the the opening up of Red China, quote unquote, is like this is this is recent history. So the idea that yeah. uh, uh, an executive of such a um, traditionalist company as Anheuser-Busch was already seeing the opportunity and mm-hmm. pivoting oh, yeah. American brands into Asian markets. I mean, like that's the type of visionary that August Bush III, whether or not you like him, that's the sort yes. of thing he was bringing to the table at this time. That's right. That's right. And so I, I focus on him because that that is the way to think about Budweiser, the brand. Mm. It has been the heart and soul of the company. They didn't I'll just give everybody a very quick history. Uh, Anheuser-Busch and Adolphus Busch did not invent Budweiser. They brewed it on contract for a friend of Adolphus Busch's in the 1870s. It came out in 1876. It was wildly popular. Eventually, the actual owner, a guy named Carl Conrad, was unable to keep paying his bills. And so Anheuser-Busch just took the brand in exchange for the debt. So it has been... And it has been... It has belonged completely to Anheuser-Busch since, I believe, 1888. So, and it was the thing that made them famous. You know, mm-hmm. th- this was their king beer. This, this was like king of the heat. So fast forward to 1980, 1979. If you're August Bush III, you're going to think long and hard before you start fiddling with the idea of Budweiser. I, I'm actually kind of surprised that the original, after Natural Light, that the next light beer they came out, they called Budweiser Light. Man, that that took, I would love to have been in on the conversation about that, but it didn't last long. Obviously, you weren't in on the conversation, but you have done so much research and you sort of have reported out the way these conversations go. You and other historians, I'm thinking of uh, William Nodelsater's uh, Bitter Brew. Um, hmm. He also has reporting from sort of that hemming and hawing at the time. What yes. When you say reluctance that this company has and you say you're surprised about it, I mean, like the major players are who? August Bush the third, obviously, is the head honcho, but he's got a phalanx of executives, some of whom... Hmm are loyal to Gussie, are loyal to the man who came before, right? Probably not by then, no. Not by then. He got rid of <laughs> no. him. He, he purged no, no. them all. I, I, I would say probably <laughs> not by then. I've never actually dug into, you know, who replaced who. But Comings I would and goings, say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I would say that by, I would definitely say by 1980, August Bush the third was 
damn sure this was his company. He's consolidated you know, power in the C-suite. There's it, yes, no one that, yeah, yeah, right, on yeah. The, that on the board of directors at in management. No, this is his company. Yep. yep gotcha. And the, the Bush family has not been majority owners of that company since I think like 1931 or something like that. Right. But it had, what had it always been run by someone named Bush mm-hmm. and the Bush family was to them, their identity is Anheuser-Busch and especially Budweiser. So tinkering with Budweiser required a fair amount of uh, spine, <laughs> you know, steel in the spine because we're not quite sure, sure what's going to happen. And I, again, I'm not surprised that after a year they just changed the name and changed their approach to it because Bud Light, the way it was marketed um, – it's almost like they were starting fresh. This isn't Budweiser anymore. This is a beer called Bud Light. I know that doesn't sound like much, but it, but it can actually mean a lot to a marketing vice president and a customer. And to your point uh, earlier, you mentioned the rollout slogan, and it was bring out your best, and the campaign was very intentionally done with a Clydesdale. It was Budweiser Light. Yes. Here's the Clydesdale. But two years later, 1984, they rebrand as Bud Light, and mm-hmm. gone is they start thinking of this not as a line extension of Budweiser. They start trying to communicate to drinkers, no, this is something totally different. Exactly. Because and and so again, like there's I think one one of the things I find so fascinating about Ambitious Brew, about that book Bitter Brew that I mentioned, Dethroning the King is another one that I've got on the shelf behind me here. AB is such this big, powerful company, but it's run by personalities at this point, and the, specifically the Bush personalities. Yes. So there's a, a fair amount of like Kremlinology that you have to do in like their public facing decisions in order mm-hmm. to like figure out like how what they're mm-hmm. up to, what they're how they're thinking about these brands, yes. and in in uh, excising the Clydesdale imagery from. Budweiser Light, yes. as it truncates the name down to Bud Light, that is a major signal to both drinkers and distributors and certainly the retailers That's as well, right. all their business partners, that this is this is its own thing now. Right. That's right. And it's worth noting that when Spuds was introduced at the 1987 Super Bowl, he was introduced in the Bud Light commercials. Mm-hmm. The Clydesdales were the stars of the Budweiser commercials. So mm-hmm. yes, they completely split these two beers. Now, I, I'm going to say at the outset, I, someone could argue that Miller Lite, L-I-T-E, was an extension of Miller High Life. I don't really think it was. But Miller and Coors both made the big mistake once it became clear that Americans wanted low-calorie beer. They pretty much sank everything into it. They didn't have backups. If there's Mm -hmm. any one thing that kept Anheuser-Busch above the fray and not worried too much about the bottom line is that they always had backups constantly. But if you look at the Coors lineup, it's Coors Light and there's Coors, Coors Miller High Life and there's Miller Light. Right. I mean, which in retrospect. And what, two breweries for Coors? Uh, versus maybe 12, I think, maybe eight at that point for, for yes. Anheuser-Busch, yes. two for Miller. Versus, I mean, like we're talking about the, the fact right. that those two companies were able to compete at that time speaks volumes to, uh, you know, the the quality of beer, the quality of marketing, all of the things that go into it, because at scale, they were not able to compete at this time. No, but I, I think the way to think about that, here's just a little bit of context. There's also nobody else. And the difference between number one and number two is huge. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, Mm -hmm. by roughly 95 or thereabouts, 
Anheuser-Busch has half of the beer market. The wow. other two have about 20% each and imports are clawing away at them. So Miller and Coors were always coming at this from a position of weakness relative to Anheuser-Busch. This is a survival play for Coors. I mean, explicitly was a survival play for Coors Light. Their stock is crashing in 1978. Yes. Uh, uh, Miller and Anheuser-Busch are eating their lunch in the Western market because they can't, you know, mm-hmm. Bill and Joe Coors are stubborn and, and refuse to, to jump into the live beer market. They need this beer. Miller Lite, Philip right. Morris is driving the bus and says, well, wait a second, let's make all this money doing this. We need this beer. Otherwise, this is just some sleepy asset that we picked up, for, you know, like, yeah. and we're going to just divest it, right? So these are these are necessity plays for Miller and Coors. Ian Hauser-Busch has come in with all the money in the world, all the expertise in the world, and, and brings muscle to this category in a way that the other two players simply aren't. And that's probably yeah. part of the reason why they were able to capture so much of that, that segment so quickly. <laughs> that's right. And, uh, and it's also worth noting that say by 1990, I think Stroh's finally collapsed in like 1994 right. Right. Uh, Schlitz shot itself in the head in 1980 Pabst was gone. So if you're an American in circa say between 1990 and 2000 and all you want is a beer, you don't have that many choices. <laughs> right, like you don't want right. a craft beer, right? Because craft beer is very small. I, don't, you know, I have no idea in 1994 if I could even buy any craft beer in the town I live in. I live right, in a small right. town in Iowa, right? It is. So if you go to the store, what you're going to see are essentially six main beers and then a handful of beers that are owned by holding companies, things like Blatt's and hams, you know, they're, they're, they're they're labeled paps. They're just labels. They're not, you know, paps is being made at Miller brewing. That's one of the things, by the way, that pays the bills for Miller. They're making a lot of these, um, holding company beers so that, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. that keeps them going. But what you can choose from is Bud Miller or Coors, Bud Light, Natural Light, Miller Light, Coors Light, because everybody else is out of business. You know, Mm -hmm. there, there is, so we're talking about, a relatively small group of objects Options, from which yeah, to yeah, choose. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's, there's just not that much going on. And this is a case where Anheuser-Busch simply had the institutional memory, I think, to be able to play the cards right. Remember, Miller lost all of its old people that they had in circa 1970 and then began turning churning their executives at Miller as things, you know, as Anheuser-Busch steps things up. And the Coors brothers are just having trouble. You know, they really thought they could go out there and kill Anheuser-Busch and it didn't work. And now they're stuck with the consequences. So if there's a player in this who's got an upper edge, there's no doubt whatsoever that it's Anheuser-Busch just because they've got at what I guess you could call a deep bench. They sure. can handle it. Sure. And Bud Light becomes, uh, you know, it was not really a misstep in 1982 that it was named Budweiser Light. That's just a blip. It was no problem whatsoever. They rebranded it to, to Bud Light mm-hmm. in 1984. By 1985, again, this citation is your book, Ambitious Brew. I'm quoting here, Americans may have been drinking less beer in recent years, but more of what they were drinking was Budweiser and Bud Light. And in 19, that's a close quote, in 1985, Bud Light alone does 5.4 million barrels of beer up right. from 1.2 million just one year prior. So like, right. I mean, this thing shot out of a cannon basically from it the jump, right? It, it did. It did. It is. Uh, and the Spuds thing, 
supercharges it. It, it, it did. And even yeah. when spuds had to be retired, you know, to make Sent to a nice farm happy. upstate. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, something like that, right? Sent to Grant's farm, uh, yeah. By that time, man, the, the job was done. And it was not until 1994 that Bud Light finally outsold Miller Lite, but they had been neck and neck in sales. And by that time, by the mid-90s, Anheuser Miller is starting to realize that they've got to come up with something, which is one reason why they bought Line and Kugel. Mm-hmm. which turned out to be the smartest thing Miller could have done. Line and Kugel uh, is an early craft brewing company uh, in Wisconsin by the, is it Wisconsin? I think yes. upper Midwest. Yeah. Uh, the maybe Minnesota, but the Line and Kugel family. So again, like we're seeing some visionary foresight on, on all sides of the battle here. I mean, that was a, I think like pretty uh, early, a bit of wisdom in Miller's case where they it saw was. how big it was going to be. No, that was, as I say, that was one of the smartest things that Miller did. And if they hadn't done that, I'm not sure that, that <laughs> they might've been sold off to SAB a whole lot sooner than right. they were. Cause That's they, a big they had bulwark. that. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. also had um, famously had a pilot Coors had a pilot brewery and introduced, I don't remember when they introduced Blue Moon. Someone will remember. I have this vague sense it's in the early 90s. Yeah, I think it's like it mid 90s that Blue Moon yeah, hits. Yeah, it, and it was marketed as, well, you could, they could, it, not exactly a micro brew, but something that would fit into the category of a beer that's not regular beer. It's not a light beer and it's not Coors, you yep. know? Yep. Blue Moon is, is, and Blue Moon also is still around, you know? You, Powerful plenty brand. Of, Successful yes, brand. Yeah, yeah. Yes. 1995, Blue Moon hits the shelves. So you're dead on. Mid-90s we're talking about here. Yeah. Um, and and these are, these are ways that these number two and three firms can try to compete on the margins. You know, if you think about it, and I think like the allegory of the battlefield is kind of useful, right? Because- no one is going to get into a shooting war with Anheuser-Busch and win, right? Like, that's not possible. You you bring the infantry to the front lines, you lower your muskets, and guess what? They've got more. Bummer. But if you can flank them, if you can find little ways to pick mm-hmm. them off here and there, if you can find little opportunities to advance the line in places they're not paying attention, like craft beer, like yes. these innovations, like Blue Moon, which is, you know, we, we would come to think of as sort of a, uh, a pseudo craft beer, but as, as, you know, introduces the idea of like fruiting a beer um, and serving it as more of a premium cocktail mm-hmm. experience with, to the American drinker writ large. Like these are opportunities for uh, uh, the other players on the battlefield to to survive and in some cases thrive, right? That's right. That's right. I um, The thing that craft beer is known for in the 1990s very famously is that there was a, mi- I keep saying craft, micro beer. There was a bubble. There was a big wave of investment by people who had no idea what they were doing. Right. And naturally, I mean, that always happens, right? When something new comes along, a category disruptor, uh, a lot of people show up and virtually all of them, no one hears about ever again. Right. We're talking about dilettantes. We're talking about investors with deep pockets who want lifestyle businesses. We're talking about imbeciles who just think they're going to be great and have no idea what they're doing. Yeah. I mean, you get all kinds. Yeah. But, but also people like Steve Hindi and I'm drawing a total blank on his partner who in in 1990 Brooklyn brewing uh, in the 1990s, they went to a craft brewers conference and they said, by God, we can do that. So some people did succeed. So my point is all there's all this other stuff stuff going on 
but it's off the radar of these big giants. Because that's 1% of the market, maybe 2% yeah. of the market. In, maybe. Uh, in, 2000, yeah, yeah. Yeah. in 2000, it was 4%. So yeah. it's not huge, but, but uh, for example, Anheuser-Busch, <laughs> this, this really was uh, them just throwing something on the wall to see if it would stick. In the 1990s, they kept introducing um, their interpretation of a microbrew complete with weird names. I mean, they didn't go so far as to name it Moose Drool. I don't remember the names of them. They oh, also, yeah. This is what I was talking about earlier. They had Pacific Ridge. They had Green yes. Valley Brewing Company. They yes. had Elk Mountain Red Ale, yes. which, by the way, is the name of their corporate hop farm. It's not <laughs> yeah. like an actual place. Yeah. You know, right yeah, no, you're totally right. Yeah. Yeah. And not Baron in the film. I think she goes to look for Spring Valley, doesn't she? She it's goes, like a yeah, she goes to Green Valley. <laughs> right. Correct. Yeah. We talked yes. about this with her on the episode. She goes to Fairfield, California, and she's yeah. like, hey, where's Green Valley? She's doing man on the street interviews. And everyone's like, we only have one brewery here, man. It's the Anheuser-Busch brewery. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah, and Anheuser-Busch yeah. also went into their own archives. Now, th- this, I think, this is one thing that I, as an historian, deeply regret. They went into their archives, which are extraordinary. I was never allowed to do anything more than stand in the doorway and look at them so I could feel bad (laughs) about all the stuff that I was never going to be. Anyway, they had, uh, you know, more than a century's worth of beer recipes that they may or may not have ever brewed. And so in the 90s, Anheuser-Busch did introduce, sadly, too briefly, a line of uh, originals using these these recipes but i think that internally they just didn't have the right people who knew how to to market beers like that to people who really only want low calorie beers you know sure. that that was really it's, it was almost like uh they just couldn't bring themselves to commit to it enough to make it work you're totally right because i mean i've reported various aspects of this out over the years. And one of the folks that I talked with was uh, Tim Schoen, who was involved in this sort of like skunk works project to produce craft Uh, beer from AB that looks and feels like, you know, independent mm -hmm. micro beer. Right. And Mm -hmm. one of the points that he made to me is like all the best people, all the resources, all of the focus is on Bud Light at Anheuser-Busch at this time. They don't actually give a shit if they sell any Pacific Ridge. These were, I think probably best understood as, what the what the industry calls category killers, right? Like if they succeed, great, and we got some revenue off them. If they fail, great. Like everyone's gonna hate craft beer because they drank a sucky knockoff from Budweiser or from Anheuser Busch that's everywhere uh, and you know has been distributed widely, right? So it's a win win, but it's a pyrrhic victory or it's a pyrrhic you know strategy again that's to right. use like the the battlefield that's metaphor right. there. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. And and yeah, he he was very clear about that. He's like getting attention on this in turn. I mean, we had some mm. good beers, we had some bad beers, but like the fact of the matter was they were never going to go anywhere because we had so much trouble pulling everyone away from just watching the rocket ship of Bud Light. You know? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. And August Bush, the fourth was vice president of the Bud Light brand or the Bud White. I think the Bud Light brand. And so I think at the time there was a bit of discomfort probably on the part of other executives. In any case, yes, it is true. It, Bud Light just ate up all the oxygen yep. just over and over again when there were other opportunities they they did, the company just chose not to follow through on them which but again they had backups budweiser remained the best selling budweiser not bud light the best selling brand uh 
Michelob Light was an immediate bestseller for them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were still selling Michelob. I can't. Bush Light. They also introduced Bush Light, which was a lower cost version of Bud Light. So they they have lots of uh, irons in the fire. And yeah. I, you know, they I was not lost on anybody in the industry at the at the time that the only two remaining big breweries had no irons in the fire other than there are two light beers. So right, right. Eh. So I want to I wanted to focus on again, just like I think like the allegory of warfare is so instructive. And of course, it's overblown. We're not talking about actual warfare. We're talking about selling beer. Mm -hmm. This is industry mythos more than it is like actual. No one's like, you know, this is not the Teamsters, right? Like pushing, you know, trucks of competitors into the into Lake Michigan or something. There's no actual violence going on here. Right. For the most part. (laughs) But I mean, of a victimless crime, I would argue. Okay, okay. <laughs> I'm kidding, All right. I'm well, that's one way. No, you're right, but you're right. You're right. It's not. Yeah. In other yeah. words, like we're not talking about mob-oriented violence. We're talking about corporate uh, uh, violence, right? And that looks and feels differently. And one of the things that we've brought up, uh, you know, in this episode and in previous episodes, one of the ways you fight this battle is advertising. I mean, we talked about mm-hmm. Miller Lite's fantastic rollout. They got Rodney Dangerfield. They got all the the macho uh, uh, former athletes. Um, we talked about. Um, you know, Spuds uh, McKenzie in 1987 trots onto the scene, this cute terrier with the with the eye patch that he's got or the, the color around his eyes, very iconic. And he all of a sudden is this gangbusters uh, uh, weapon in, in Hauser-Busch's arsenal to sell Bud Light. Another way you fight this battle, if you're in Hauser-Busch or you're uh, uh, Miller, um, is you you work the refs right? Like you you look mm-hmm. to to someone else to referee or to intercede. Um, I suppose in the UN metaphor, this would be the UN, or in the warfare meta- metaphor, this would be the UN. I'm mixing my metaphors. The point is, one of the ways <laughs> that they fight is legal challenges to yeah. one another, and this is yeah. asymmetrical, and it is if not self-acknowledgedly bullshit. It's very widely interpreted as just a way for them to get under one another's skin to, mm-hmm. to suck time and resources away from the focus of marketing these beers. Hey, if we can, if we can tie up Miller in uh, a BATF, you know, investigation over one of their brands. Uh, well, guess what? That's more resources that they can't spend on, on beating us mm-hmm. in this market with Miller Lite or whatever. And two, uh, I think in particular that you highlighted in the book, I guess, what was it? I think like 1970, uh, mid-70s, like as Miller Lite starts coming in 1978, so late 70s, as Miller Lite is, has established itself very clearly as a problem for Anheuser-Busch, Anheuser-Busch mm-hmm. kind of snitches to the FTC and says, hey, uh, can you look into their Lowenbrow brand? Yes. Because that's not actually a real German import, and they're tricking consumers with uh, mm-hmm. d- import prices but domestic beer, right? And so this is AB interpreted, with uh, certainly with the benefit of hindsight, this is AB just kind of, you know, uh, some skullduggery, some corporate skullduggery from a competitor. Yes. Um, and then Miller returns the favor, right? Who did they, they, they went after uh, AB for something. Oh, for, for Natty Light, for Natural Light, right? Just, I think later uh, that year, maybe the year, the uh, Okay. 
Yeah. Yeah. Cause, yeah. cause, cause AB was marketing, you know, there was organic beer, right. Or there was made with organic ingredients and Miller's like, there's no way they're doing that. You know, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> and so they asked the TT or the BATF, which would, you know, uh, runs the TTB, uh, to look into that. So, so they're, they're, they're throwing mud at each other too. They're not just fighting. Yes. They're not just fighting for space in the beer aisle. They're also fighting one another in, the court of public opinion with advertising and then the actual courts with That's right. these semi-spurious lawsuits designed to confuse and to, and to suck resources from their competitor. That's right. And when they could and get away with it, they Anheuser-Busch in particular used those very points in their own advertising when at, I don't remember now the exact date of this one, but at one point when I think it was when Coors built another plant, man, Anheuser-Busch went right after them in advertising saying, you know, that beer that's supposed that light beer made with Rocky Mountain spring right, water, right. I, I don't, you know, I don't think so. Lowenbrow, is this really a Lowenbrow? You know, is it? Yes, right. yes, yes. And those things also get press, right? I yep. mean, the, the, the legal squabbles themselves get press and you can use them in marketing. So, oh yeah, there, there is absolutely no doubt at least in the mind of collective mind of Anheuser-Busch, that the Miller Brewing Company was a problem to be solved. I don't think they ever really took Coors seriously. (laughs) Other than the fact that Coors Light was always one of the top three beers. It was pretty much always number three. But otherwise, yeah, I don't think they ever really, you know, they didn't. But but they uh, it's clear that Anheuser-Busch was just determined to grind Miller into the ground. And it's not surprising that in 2002, Philip Moore said, okay, okay, we're done with this. Yeah. These guys are nuts. These guys are lunatic. Like they care way too much. This is annoying. Yeah. Yeah, Right. Yeah. You, (laughs) you take it off our hands. Yeah. 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 Well, in, in that, uh, the fact that AV didn't care about Coors, um, or, you know, it's, it's it's an also ran, right? Like Michael Phelps didn't care about the guy coming in third in the pool. That's right. That's right. It's like, it's good that he's running his race. Best of best of luck to him. The Coors family by contrast saw some, like fellow feeling towards Augie Bush is specifically with regards to Anheuser Bush's labor challenges when the Teamsters strike AB. Um, what is this? Like late sixties, early seventies. Joe Coors at this point is is an ultra conservative sort of mm-hmm. godfather of the neo conservative movement with Reagan. Whatever he is, yeah. he is getting himself worked into a tizzy about labor unions contributing to the, to the, you know, uh, undoing of the American dream or whatever, however you want to phrase it. So when, when the Teamsters strike AB in a pretty acrimonious strike that lasts, whatever, a hundred days or so, um, the Coors doesn't go after AB's tap handles, doesn't go after their, their, their shelf space deliberately stays, you know, on the sidelines uh, with this great opportunity but then when Coors has trouble five years later with labor, AB doesn't give a shit. Of course they don't. <laughs> yeah, oh. They're like, they're like, this is war, motherfucker. Like that's yeah, your no. own fault. This is this is survivor. <laughs> it is it is survivor. When you're when again, it's important to realize the attrition rate. And famously hmm. in 1978, uh, you know, there are a couple of numbers, but there were only f- 49 actual brewing companies in the US and that mm, included a mm. handful of micros that there just aren't that many brewers so if you are Anheuser-Busch in particular you are keenly aware that this if you really want to dominate the universe man 
it's in your grasp. Yeah, maybe. you were you were in in the zone at that point. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Oh, right, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Maureen, once again, we've gone the distance here on Tap Lines. Once again, we have a barn burner of an episode that our <laughs> listeners hopefully enjoyed uh, as much as I did. Thank you so much for joining us again on the show. Uh, we leave our story, The Light Beer Wars, in 2008 when we finally see the inflection point on the light beer segment and we start to see the slide that has only accelerated to the present day, um, 2023. I mean, we're seeing certainly decade over decade decline in beer and, and, and massive declines in light beer in particular Mm -hmm. in no small part. Um, part of the reason why is because of that, uh, piece of the puzzle that we've deliberately put on the sidelines for most of this conversation. But, um, in 2008, uh, America really, the American drinking public really gets that mainstream taste for full flavored craft beer and some of what's taking share away from the Bud Lights and the Miller Lights of the world at this point is, is those more full flavored beers by, by yes. these, these upstart companies that are by then kind of established, you know, Sierra Nevada, Boston Beer Company, um, mm-hmm. uh, 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 Deschutes is, you know, comes onto the scene in 94 and 10 years later is, is a strong, you know, uh, a player in the space. So in, in some ways, the attrition and the slugfest that AB and Miller and to some extent Coors uh, get into over the back half of the 20th century and into the first decade of the 21st uh, gives, you know, levels the field or exhausts the mm-hmm. competitors and distracts mm-hmm. them enough that all of a sudden we have a little bit of a, of a new problem that we need to pay attention to. And it's these, yes. these, these micro yeah. brewers who have a new name and have new momentum, these craft beers uh, that are light beers look like water next to. And, and so that's, we we leave it there. Maureen, thank you so much uh, <laughs> again welcome, for, for joining us here on Tap Lines. And uh, I guess, you know, enjoy your life of never having drank a light beer. I hope that streak <laughs> has continued. <laughs> Isn't that nuts? I, I just don't see the point. I, I mean, I just I suppose in the interest of professional interest, I should taste them. But I just I just don't get the point. Like Michelob Ultra, I don't get the point. They say war has many casualties, but your palate was not one of them for the light beer wars because you never, you never experienced it. Mm-mm. Thank you again so much, Maureen. Thank you have you, a great, Dave. great rest of your day, and we are so happy to have you on Tap Lines. Thanks, thanks for having me. Bye. Bye. Tap Lines is recorded in Richmond, Virginia, and produced by yours truly and Darby Seaside, who, along with the talented Shane Farrick, composed our delightful soundtrack. Just listen to it. I also want to give a quick shout out to the entire Vine Pair team, and especially co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon, Editor-in-Chief Joanna Sherino, Managing Editor Tim McCurdy, and Art Director Danielle Grinberg, who designed our lovely Taplines logo. And of course, a big thank you to you, yes you listener, for spending time with us week in and week out. We literally couldn't do this without you. I'm Dave Infante, and I'll catch you next time. <laughs>